0: And we were told and taught how to record an experiment. I don't know if you remember, you'd, something like that in your notebooks. You'd write down the date, the title of the experiment, the apparatus you were going to use, and then you'd write down observations, what you observe. Nathan is full time doing uh, research, Nathan, lots of observations. That's what it's all about, isn't it? And as we observe, we learn, and that's how science develops. It's all based on observations. And today we're going doing a little bit of science because to learn what Jesus is teaching us in this amazing story of his triumphal entry, there's a few things we need to observe first. So the first observation is actually what happened just before the verses which we've read here. Because in chapter 20... Uh, in chapter 20, verses 29 to 34, two blind men received their sight from Jesus. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed them. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David. Have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them. And he touched their eyes. And immediately they received their sight. And they followed him. Now, on first reading of those verses, uh, you might just think, well, it's another miracle. There's been lots of them, really, up to this point. Uh, And you might even say, if Matthew hadn't included this miracle, it wouldn't make much of a difference. But actually, this account has a major impact on the triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem because this is the first time that Jesus has been given this title, Son of David, publicly. Um, And who is the Son of David? What's the significance of that title? Those listening that day knew exactly what that title meant because Son of David was the messianic king that had been predicted for centuries, the ultimate king, the king they had been waiting to liberate them. So when these blind men call out, son of David, what they're actually calling out is, oh, ultimate king, oh, final king of the world. And Jesus acknowledged that title. He accepted it because he replied to them. He asked them what they wanted in front of everybody. Hard for us to imagine, but the people probably all gasped when they heard that. Did you hear that? He's accepting the fact that he is the Messianic king, the one we've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the disciples equally would have gasped because they knew who he was now and they wanted him to tell everybody who he was. They wanted also to be free from the Roman Empire, as they saw his key role and the people as well. So, this is now a crunch point because having made this claim to be the Messiah, the deliverer, in front of everyone, Jesus now has either to triumph and establish himself as king, or he will be defeated by the religious leaders of the day who won't stand up for this claim he's making. So, it's either do or die. Everything was going to happen from now on. So what was going to happen? Well, so we begin the final week of Jesus' life. And the second thing we observed is the planning of the triumphal entry. You see, I've always thought that his entry into Jerusalem was, it just kind of happened. You know, he was coming into Jerusalem and some people heard he was coming and they went out to, to, to praise him because they knew, had heard of what he had done and they came out with the palm leaves and their cloaks, and they put them on the ground. And Jesus probably just said, Oh, well, look, you're being very nice to me, and it's okay. I'll I'll accept your praise. And on he went in Jerusalem. That's kind of how I'd always thought this event happened. Maybe I thought the guy with the donkey, he knew him, and he'd said, Listen, I'll be popping into town someday. I'll need a donkey, so I might call up for yours. Maybe he had, I thought. Maybe he had. But that's not what happened. Jesus is planning everything here. You see, Jesus is always in control of what's happening. And so he's planning his entry into the city. Bethphage was near Jerusalem. In the Gospel of John, we read that Bethany, and Bethphage is close to Bethany, was uh, two miles from Jerusalem, so just about three kilometers. And Jesus had spent a lot of time there. So he knew Bethphage very, very well. He would have known the streets and the houses, he would have known the house with the donkey as well. Now, the people in Bethphage would have known Jesus well because they would have known and seen a lot of his miracles. Um, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. They would have heard that. They would have known of that miracle. So they were well aware of who he was and what he had done. They would have known of his amazing miracles. Probably no other crowd at that time, knew Jesus as well as the people in those two villages. Uh, And so he sends two of his disciples in verse 2 to get a donkey in Bethphage. Now, as I said, he would have known where the donkey was, a bit like you, probably knowing what car might be parked in your neighbor's drive. We're just up the road from the Ogle. So I could tell you what cars are parked outside their house. So Ithaca has a Ferrari and Sibron has a Porsche. And that's what you'll find outside their house if you drive And Jesus equally would have known the house with the donkey. And so he sends his disciples. But Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's staging this because he knows the man when they come. As you could imagine, if I went down to get Sivan's port, he'd say, oh, what are you doing? And so the man comes out and says to them, hold on, what's going on? And Jesus says to the disciples, tell him the master wants the donkey. And so word spreads, you see. The man tells the people, oh, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's taking my donkey for a ride. And so word spreads. And this crowd comes out to praise him. Because they, they, they knew what he had done. They want to worship him. And they want to give him praise. And we know the crowd that lined the road into Jerusalem. Are not the same people as in Jerusalem. Because in verse 10. We see the people saying. Who is this? Who, who, who is this man coming in? It was the people on the road in Jerusalem told them, it's Jesus. They knew who he was. The people in the city were wondering what all the fuss was about. You see, Jesus not only sent for the donkey, but he sends for the crowd as well. And it's interesting because six verses are taken up here with getting the donkey. Now, the people who wrote the Gospels are concise with the words. Why would they devote six, six ver, ver, verses here to what seems like a very mundane, ordinary task? because Jesus is showing us he's controlling everything. He's forcing an issue here. He's coming into Jerusalem, declaring now as loudly as possible who he is, the son of David, the messianic king, the one who has been promised for hundreds of years. Jesus is now claiming his kingship. He wants people to know who he was. It's interesting, you see, all along he's been telling people who had miracles performed, don't tell people about this. He didn't want to be overpowered by people just simply wanting miracles done. But now it's changed. He's entering the last week of his life. Now he wants people to know who he is and what he's coming to do. So Jesus plans his triumphal entry, and he plans for the crowd to make the noise and to tell people in Jerusalem who he is. The third thing we observe is the choice of transport. A donkey. The king comes on a donkey. The poor disciples, they must have been exasperated. At last they had some progress, they felt. At last Jesus is declaring who he really is, the promised king, the ultimate king. So now they're thinking, let's move forward. Now we want Jesus to act as a king. And if a king is entering a city, and the capital city at that, and he needs transport, well well then let's get him decent transport. Let's get him a proper horse, Maybe a big black or white horse. That's what he should ride on because that's what a king would ride on. But he chooses a donkey, for goodness sake. What is he thinking? They must have thought, what kind of a message will this give out? Obviously, Jesus is not good at the whole PR thing. He needs a bit of help in this department. We've got to kick the Romans out and kings don't ride on donkeys. Jesus seems to be sending a very mixed message in the middle of all this celebration and joy. But what is Jesus teaching through these three observations we've just made? Let's go back to verse 5. See, your king comes to you gentle. So let's spend a few minutes focusing on that word king. Jesus comes as king. That's what it says here, this prophecy from Isaiah. He is now making that claim. He is the confronting king. Jesus, who is always very, very humble and gentle, is never reserved about who he is. We have seen his humility and his compassion and tenderness as we've been looking through our series in the Gospel of Mark. Just by way of example, we read in Luke 7, verse 11, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples uh, and Sorry, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain uh, with his disciples, and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. His heart went out. He was full of compassion. He was humble. He was gentle. The same with the two blind men we just read about. His heart went out to them. But we never see Jesus holding back on who he is. And he continues to make incredible claims. And that's why he goes to the temple in verses 12 to 17. And he calls it my house. And he overturns the tables and he clears it out only like an owner would do. Jesus is saying he is God. He's making no bones about it. He wants people to know. Because Jesus' kingship confronts. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he says to everybody, he says, you either crown me or kill me, and nothing in the middle. He says the same to us today. Jesus is forcing everyone's hand. And Jesus will plan and arrange our lives so that we are confronted with the same choice. Crown me or kill me. And each of us must answer that question for ourselves. Is he your absolute king? Jesus says to us, either you dismiss me completely out of your lives or you can give over your complete life to me, but there's nothing in between. No middle ground. Crown me or kill me. For so many people, um, people want Jesus to be their friend, their counsellor, their guide, their helper, someone we can turn to when we have needs or problems in our lives. And when we're Christians, when we have made Jesus king of our lives, he will be all of those to us and more besides. But he will be none of those to us unless he is king first. King or nothing. All of you or none of you. Make me the supreme king of your life, but don't just like me. In Revelation, the angel is speaking to John, and he says, tell the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Well, that's the same thing. The six-mile-long aqueduct on the next slide, you'll see it there. It's an amazing structure. Can you imagine in those days they built that aqueduct six miles long? Laodicea didn't have a water supply of its own, so they brought the water in on an aqueduct. Two sources they used. There were hot springs, which brought water in, but unfortunately by the time it traveled the six miles in the aqueduct, it had cooled down. And then there was cold, fresh, refreshing water. That was the second source. But by the time that came along the aqueduct, in that blue sky and sunshine, it had warmed up. And so by the time it got to the town, it was lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And so he's not saying, I want you, uh, I don't want you cold, I want you hot. He's saying hot water has a use. It can be used for bathing in and for washing. Cold water is refreshing to drink. But who likes lukewarm water? A bit like food. We like our food hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Nothing in between. And so he wants to spit them out of his mouth. These Christians in Laodicea had gone lukewarm. Jesus wants our all or nothing. So if if we are asking Jesus for help, for strength, for guidance, but we're not enjoying him and obeying him and giving our all to him, then we're looking for some kind of abstract power in our lives. His power is kingly power, and he needs us to give ourselves to him there's a very unusual story that illustrates um, this point. Um, and it says this, some Jews who went round, this is Paul speaking, some Jews who went round, uh, sorry, this is in the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 13, some Jews who went round driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, when uh, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who, was, who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It sounds even comical, doesn't it? And it seems an odd story. But it's illustrating the very same point. You see, these men thought they would use God, the power of Jesus, just to suit themselves. They didn't know him. They had no faith in him. He was not king of their lives. We can't just call on the power of God if he's not king of our lives. You see, the evil spirit knew Jesus. They knew Paul. They knew Paul was trusting in Jesus. Jesus was his king, and they obeyed them. But these men, no. So we can't just call on God's power as though it's magical because Jesus wants... Him, wants him to be king of our lives. Secondly, the second word I want us to emphasize on, your king comes gentle. He comes riding on a donkey. This was prophesied, I was amazed to discover, way back in Genesis chapter 49, we read, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine and his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. It's amazing, isn't it? Way back then, the reference to the donkey and the colt, both. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, we read the genealogy of Jesus and in that line to Jesus' birth, Judah's name is mentioned there. Way back then, this very scene was spoken about. Isn't God's word amazing, isn't it? And and this speaks of a great king to come who will put everything right. In fact, life will be so good. If you like the illustration here, we will be able to wash our clothes in wine. Life, there'll be so much wine flowing. It's picturing what it will be like when Jesus returns again. And so we have it uh, here as well in the quotation from um, Isaiah uh, chapter 9. And we read, say to daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey was prophesied a second time in Zechariah 9. Now any general riding uh, into a battle on a donkey, well, he doesn't stand a chance. Did you ever see it? No, he would be killed. Kings don't ride on donkeys. Servants ride on Donkeys. Jesus comes riding on a donkey vulnerable. Why? This is a picture of the gospel. The next thing he does in the account we read, he goes to the temple and he cleanses it. You see, the money changers were using God instead of letting God use them. And the reversal in the temple is the reason for the reversal on the road. The two events are linked. Sin is the servant putting himself in place of the king. Me first, I'll be in charge. I'll use God to help me when it suits. But salvation is the king putting himself in the place of the servant. And so he rides on the donkey, dying for our sins. And so he is saying, I am the king, but not the king you think I should be. Jesus is saying to these people, to the disciples, if I free you from the Romans, and that's what they wanted, what will you do about your real slavery? Because you have a slavery that goes far deeper than the slavery to Rome. And he says the same to us today. If I, and we come to him with our needs, and we are right to do so. But he comes and says to us that that's all we come to him for. If I free you of your financial problems, of your housing problems, if I free you of your illness, what will you do about the real slavery you're under? slavery to sin. Jesus says, I have come to give you real liberation and freedom. The gentle king, the dying king, the king on a donkey. And if this king comes into our lives, he will turn us and turn into gentle people as well. The whole point of the gospel is that we are saved through weakness and not through strength. Every other religion and philosophy will say, Well, I'm going to sort out my life. I'm going to put in the effort, and I will do better. I'm going to save myself through strength. And that's what the disciples and the people here wanted. Jesus, come and save us from these Romans by your strength. But Jesus says, no, you can't be saved. You can't be set free until you die to self, until you die to your own strength. Jesus comes and dies in our place, So we are not saved by strength, but by grace, not by our efforts, but by his grace. If we believe we're saved by strength, we can do it ourselves, by our own efforts. And let's say something really bad happens in our lives. Then we're going to get either angry with God, and we're going to say, well, I've been living a good life, God. I've been doing what you say as best I can. I've been putting in the effort. So how can you let this happen to me? I deserve more from you why has this happened to me? I deserve better. Or you're going to be cross with yourself and you're going to say, well, I've let myself down. I haven't followed the standards I've set for myself. And you'll just be despondent and you'll get down. If you're a Christian and Jesus is king of your life, then you will have a gentle response and you will say, on the one hand, I am a sinner and I don't deserve a good life. But on the other hand, you will say, I am loved by him. I am accepted by him. I am freely welcomed by him. And therefore, this thing that has happened in my life is not a punishment, but it's God working out his plan for me in my life. You see, we're saved through weakness, which is the message of Easter, which is what we're looking forward to next Sunday morning on Easter Sunday. Jesus calls us to put all our strength in him, and that means forgoing my strength. And the last point I want us to to, to see here in this verse, uh, your king comes to you. Two things here to observe. Present tense, he comes. Here he is for you today. Jesus comes. It's time for us to make the choice. We can't ignore him. The fact that we're sitting here this morning, we can't ignore him because he comes to us now this morning. And if you have never made Jesus your king, then this Palm Sunday he comes to you gentle and he confronts you and he says, either crown me or kill me, make me king of your life or ignore me completely, hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Don't just say you like me, I'm a good man and uh, you respect me, all or nothing." And the second thing it says, he comes. Well, that indicates he's not fully here yet. It's interesting, this picture of the palms. In 1 Chronicles 16, verse 31 to 34, we read, Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing. Let them sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And in Isaiah 55, verse 12, we read, You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and the trees of the fields will clap their hands. They're amazing images, how that will work out in reality, and they, they are speaking when Jesus comes again, will the trees and the mountains clap their hands? How will that look? I don't know. But this I do know. When Jesus comes back again, when his kingship is absolute, the world, creation, will praise him. Now, if the trees are going to praise Jesus and wave their branches, what will we be like then when our king returns? What is promised for Christians is absolutely astounding. That's the significance of the palms. It's beyond what we can believe. And as we put our faith, if Jesus is our king today, and we've trusted him, we experience some of that peace and joy, and the love he gives us, but much, much more when he returns to this earth, or when we die and go to be with him in heaven. So, let Jesus this morning confront you with his kingship. And you meet him, the gentle king. And when we do so and we put our faith and trust in him, he will make us into something beyond what we can imagine. Even for those of us as Christians this morning who have made Jesus king, Palm Sunday is a wonderful day to reflect again and to look at our own hearts and to ask, is Jesus the absolute king of my life? How does that look for me this week? in my thoughts, in the decisions I'm going to make, in the priorities with my time. Let Jesus be absolute king. In fact, today when you go home and tomorrow morning when you wake up, why not pray, Jesus, be absolute king in my life today. Listen to him, spend time in his word and pray and hear him speak to you during the day so we live out lives uh, showing that he is our king. Thank you, Jacob.